Isn't that a great title? <laughs> Love that. Uh, there was an interesting survey done where they asked people, do you want to know the Bible better? Now, this is not surprising. 80% of people in the church said, yes, I want to know the Bible better. But what was so stunning about the survey is that 60% of the people who said, I want to know the Bible better, didn't go to any church at all. Which means apparently people are more interested in the Bible than they are in church. And maybe that's where you are. Why is it that people want to know the Bible better? Because people know that when you know the Bible better, you get better at life. And stats really do prove that. For example, those who are Bible engaged, that means they read the Bible four days a week or more, Bible engaged people experience 59% less sexual addictions, 62% less drunkenness, 75% less gambling addictions. Now, some might say, well, sure, the Bible is just a killjoy. Like, don't do this and don't do that and don't have any fun. It's actually not the no's of the Bible that transform people. It's the yeses of the Bible. Because when you crack the pages of this book, you hear messages like this. Yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you do have the power of the Holy Spirit to change. Yes, God does have a plan and purpose for your life. It's the yeses that make all the difference in the world. And in fact, here's some of the differences it makes. Bible-engaged people have 40% less issues of anger management. 40%. 32% less thoughts of self-harm. 32% less feelings of isolation and loneliness. Knowing the Bible better makes you better. And here's my question. If everyone wants to know the Bible better, why don't they? I mean, how many of you have decided, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible? You started and then didn't finish. The first, I guess it probably first 10 times I tried to read through the Bible, I failed. And it was usually Leviticus. Have you read the book? I mean, it's like blood and guts and sacrifices and a lot of stuff I didn't understand. And I just go, I'm out. I don't see how it applies to me. We know, this is pretty clear, we know why people get stuck reading the Bible. It's a big book. So it's easy to get lost along the way. And it's an old book. So it's easy to get confused about different cultures. It's easy to get, uh, like these names, I can't even pronounce these names. Now, I'm not saying that you say that. I'm saying I'm saying that. I don't know how to pronounce the names. Let me give you a life hack. If you're ever in group and they call on you to read the Bible, come across a name that you don't know how to pronounce, here's what you do. I, I promise you it works. Just whatever syllables come to your brain, just say them out loud and fast. Because nobody in the group knows how to pronounce it any better than you do. Like, and if you go, well, Melchizedek, and they go, actually, it's Melchizedek, you can go, I know, I know. I was using the Syriac pronunciation that they'll be so confused. It works. Have I ever done that in a sermon? Maybe. <laughs> Knowing the Bible better makes us better. And that, what this series is all about is coaching you. And we're not gonna tell you what you need to know. That's in the Bible. We're gonna tell you what you need to know so that you can know what you need to know. 
And I think whether you're a first-time guest here or maybe, maybe someone brought you along or maybe you're watching online, you're on a treadmill right now and you're thinking, you know what, I would like to know the Bible better, but I just, I'm so far behind, how could I ever catch up? Let me just say this clearly. You don't have to know everything in the Bible. You don't even have to read every book in the Bible. And I, and I wish preachers would stop saying to you, read your Bible, read your Bible. You know what, you already want to. We need to start telling you how, and that's what this series is really all about. So whether you're a beginner or you're a deep dive into it, listen, for some of you are like overachievers, we know that. So for this series, we've done something special for this series. For every sermon, there's going to be bonus content online. So you're welcome. <laughs> if, you, if you like the message, you can go to YouTube and just type in CCB online. There will be a whole nother lesson to take you deeper. But let me, let me just be really clear. We're not trying to get you to know the Bible better. We're trying to get you to live it out better. Because it's not in knowing it that your life has changed. It is in obeying it that your life has changed. And for those of you who are feeling a little intimidated, let me just set your mind at ease with a little story. My son and I for years have had a bucket list dream of hiking the Grand Canyon together. And we got to do that this week. We spent three days in the Grand Canyon hiking. And one of the rangers told us a little fun fact, there are six million visitors to the Grand Canyon every year. What percentage of those six million would you guess actually hike below the rim? One percent. I am a one percenter. <laughs> Just saying. Now, <clears throat> does that make me an expert on the Grand Canyon? <laughs> Listen, we hiked 50 miles in three days. Do you know how many miles there are in the Grand Canyon of hiking trails? Over 400. And those 400 miles touch a fraction of the Grand Canyon Park. Me, an expert, because of 50 miles, that's a joke. And listen, I've been studying this book for years. I've hiked through some of the depths of it. I'm only a fraction of the way there. And don't let that discourage you, because th this book is it's magical in a way that a child can jump into this book and not drown. But an expert will never plumb the depths of this book. And, and if you're one of the 99% that maybe you don't know the Bible that well, I wanna tell you what happened with my grandson. The third day of hiking, we're coming out of the canyon and we coordinated with our wives. We told them we're gonna be at the Bright Angel Trailhead, here's the time, bring the kids. And we're actually on the phone with them and my grandson kept asking, is that the Grand Canyon? Uh, no, it's not. Is that the Grand Canyon? No, it's not. And, and his mom said, look, when you see the Grand Canyon, you will know it. And we happened to be on the phone with our wives when he saw it and we knew it. Because this little guy goes, oh, wow. And I'm just telling you, even if you're, the first time you open the Bible, you can have an oh wow moment with God. You don't, have to, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to hike every trail. You don't have to plumb its depths. You just need to open up God's word and say, God, speak to me. 
And so part of what I want to do is take a big book and make it smaller and an old book and make it more relevant. So I want to start out with this exercise. It's a fun little exercise uh, where you can literally get your hands around the entire Bible in five minutes. You ready? Okay, I want you to, if you have a pen, pull out a pen. If you have a purse, it's in your purse or maybe in your pocket, pull out, pull out a pen. I've called your mother. She said it's okay for you to write on your fingers. And we're going to do an exercise where you write a simple symbol on each finger. And I want to show you how this works uh, because I shared this with several friends of mine. While you're watching them, go ahead and write on your own hands. I'll join you. Watch this. Hey guys, thanks for, for joining me out here. I, I wanna show how you can put the entire Bible on two hands. And what, what we're gonna do is just put one simple symbol, left hand, Old Testament, right hand, New Testament. You're gonna have the whole Bible on 10 fingers. You ready? Okay, here, here's the first symbol. Uh, little smiley face, you got that? Little smiley face on your thumb, representing the Garden of Eden when everyone was happy. That didn't last very long. Second symbol, this is on your pointer finger of your left hand. Okay. It's actually a chain. Just like two little ovals and then a line in between looks like something like that. That represents the exodus of Egypt when Israel was in bondage. So Genesis, Exodus, then we go into the law. Ten Commandments, super simple, just the number ten. It's on your, on your big finger, middle, middle finger, now we go to the ring finger. What do we do on the ring finger? Just make a W. This is for the kings, the kings of Israel. Make a W, put a line down each side, a line underneath it, and it will look like that. All right, the, this last one on your pinky is a little bit harder. Just make a heart, just a simple heart. And then you're gonna put like a lightning bolt through it and it'll look like a broken heart. That represents after the period of kingship, God sent first Assyria and then Babylon to take the nation of Israel into exile. It was a period of mourning and it takes us uh, clear through the book of Malachi and even between Malachi and Matthew was this period of sadness and brokenness uh, in the kingdom of Israel. So that's the Old Testament. You got it? Yeah. If you look at it, it's Eden where everything was happy, sin entered and then we went into bondage. Right. After that, you've got the 10 commandments. God is saying, okay, here's how I want you to live when I brought you out of Egypt to become a nation. They demanded a king, puts kings over them, but the king sinned and now we go into exile. That's the story of the Old Testament. If you go to the New Testament, let's start with your pinky. And the biggest story of the New Testament is Jesus. Woo. So we're just gonna put a cross. Just put a cross on your pinky. It's hard to do with your left hand, isn't it? You'll, you'll like the next one. This is super easy. The cross would not have made a difference without the resurrection. So for the resurrection, just want you to do a zero or Easter egg, whatever it looks like to you. It's representing an empty tomb. That's the story. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, tomb is empty. Where do we go from there? Okay, in the Old Testament, we had 10 commandments, plus a whole bunch of others, but 10 major commandments. You know how many commandments Jesus gave us as Christians? Two. Love God, love others. Which, interestingly, both of those are from the Old Testament. So just put a two on your largest finger, your middle finger, that's gonna represent 
the new law for Christians in the New Testament. And then we go to the pointer finger of your right hand, and it's just going to be an arrow. Just draw a simple arrow. This represents Acts and Romans and Galatians. It's the great commandment to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The final one is an infinity sign. Simple infinity sign. It's like an eight laid on its side. And that's when we go to eternity through revelation. So now here's what I want you to do. See how see you're holding your hands? Mm-hmm. Put your pinkies together. Do you see the broken heart of the exile period of the Old Testament is matched by the cross of Jesus in the new? Mm-hmm. Right. And then you see the king, the kings of the Old Testament are matched by the resurrection when Jesus ascended into heaven and became king. The 10 commandments are matched by the two commandments in the New Testament. The exile period where we were in bondage is matched by sending us into all the world with ultimate freedom. And then the happy face of Eden is matched by eternity. And now you can tell the whole story of the Bible with two hands. Good job, guys. Okay, if, if, if you were actually doing that, uh, look over, if you weren't doing it, look over someone who did. It's, it's like super cool. And if you turn it this way, there's the entire Bible right on two hands. The Old Testament on your left hand, the New Testament on your right, from the Garden of Eden to eternity. Isn't that simple? And what struck me about that is the balance of it that these aren't random historical events that we bump up against one another. God had a plan from the very beginning to the very end. What I wanna do is to take your left hand and just put one name on each of the fingers. You don't have to write it down, you can if you want, but I just want you to be able to put a pillar person on each finger that illustrates how God worked through people throughout all human history to bring us salvation in Jesus. And we begin, of course, in Eden with the man Adam. Adam and Eve were the first couple that God made. Their story is told in the beginning of the book of Genesis. Genesis actually covers 2,000 years of human history. The entire Bible only covers 4,000 years. So over half of the Bible is in the very first book. And there's some really important things in there. And of course, Adam, about as near as we can tell, about 4,000 years before Christ, is roughly 500 years before the very first wheel that was found in Mesopotamia. So mental map that on human history. That's the time frame we're talking about. Now, the story of Adam, you know well, that God made Adam and Eve and they sinned in the garden. But the question that Adam begs all of us to ask is, who am I? Isn't that that a question that you've asked? From the very earliest book in the Bible to today, the same, we're asking, who are we? And honestly, our culture is more confused about our identity than it has ever been. And yet we have always had a definitive answer not from wise men, but from God himself. It's in the very first chapter, verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So who are you? You are a person with a purpose. That God created you to rule over, to take care of, to steward this earth. We've done a pretty poor job of it, to be honest. And part of that is because sin entered the picture. But the other part of this identity, and I don't want you to miss this, it says, God said, let us, that is plural, I don't know how to think through that, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God created us. The us created us. And so many people are trying to find their identity in me. You will never find your identity in you. You find your identity in the relationships you have with the people around you. All of us are a product of our family, of our culture, of our friends. But even before we ever had family or friends, we had a God who made us in his image. What does that mean that you have the image of God? It doesn't mean that you are God, but it means you have his nature in you. And here's one of the ways that you might think through that. There's animals, there's you, there's God. And part of you is like animals and not like God. Like God doesn't have a body, we do, animals do. We sleep, we eat, we fear, just like animals. But there's part of us that we are so not animals. For, for example, what's the first thing you do every morning? You look to see what time it is. Why? Because you are like God. Now, God is above time, but he brokers in time in his relationship with us. Here's another example. We communicate. Now, animals communicate in a way, but usually with smells or sounds or calls. They don't communicate with poems and sonnets, with texts and tweets and texts. We are unique in our ability to communicate, and that comes directly from God. Here's another one. Animals do not eat communally. Now, they may eat at the same time, but they don't eat together. They don't set the table. They don't ring a dinner bell. They don't have holiday meals with special plates. We do that. So does God. It talks about the banquet of God as soon as we get into heaven. This is something that is God's nature in us. Here's a fourth thing. Animals may make something like a den or a nest, but they don't create anything. They don't decorate their spaces. They don't paint pictures. They don't sing songs. Birds call, they don't sing. And and yet you look at every environment that you're in, there is human art. It is as if we can't help ourselves to create around us. And we can't. You know why? Because the God who created the heavens and the earth put the paintbrush in our hands and said, now I want you to make a world out of it. And so we did. With language and schools and businesses and architecture and culture. We are insatiably creative. But what happened in the Garden of Eden is that Eve was seduced, Adam as well, to be like God. And the more that we try to be God, the more our society acts like animals. We have a problem, a sin problem, and that was apparent very early on. 
And, and God tried to solve the problem by just wiping it out. He started afresh, clean slate called the flood, but Noah and his family failed as well. And God realized we will never be transformed through punishment. It's only through relationship. So God started with a relationship with a couple, Adam and Eve, and then he went to a family of Noah, then he went to a tribe of a man named Abram. God actually changed his name to Abraham from father to the father of many. Now to mental map Abraham, he is approximately 500 years after the pyramids of Giza were created in Egypt. He comes from the land of what we would call Iraq, and God called him into the promised land, what we now today call Israel. And he said, Abraham, I want, I want to make a nation out of you. And here's how God is going to solve the sin problem of our world. The promise was made in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. That's key. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so, Abram became the father of the Jewish nation, as well as the father of Christianity, as well as the father of Islam. But Abraham is not the blessing. When God said, I'm going to bless the world through you, it doesn't mean that people who come to Abraham will be blessed. It is the people of Abraham go into the world to bless them, specifically through one of the generations of Abraham, one man named Jesus Christ. And that became apparent in Genesis 22. Abraham is in his 90s. God had promised him a child. He had no child. His wife, also 90, had no child. That is like um, impossible now, except for God. And she has this baby. And here, this promised child, Isaac, is born. Somewhere in his teenage years, God said to Abram, I, I want you to take your son Isaac to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And we don't really know what Abraham is thinking until we get to the book of Hebrews, clear in the New Testament. It says that Abraham logically said, if God is going to bless the world through my child, and he asked me to kill my child, then God is going to raise my child from the dead. And so he marches the boy up the hill, and on the way up, there's a teenage boy, he's inquisitive. He goes, Dad, I see that you have the wood. I see that you have the butcher's knife. I don't see a sacrifice. And Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And he lays his son down on the altar and he lifts up the knife and he's ready to plunge it into his sternum. And an angel says, Abraham, wait. He waited. He said, look in the thicket. There's a ram there who's caught. And God has provided a sacrifice for your son. I'm sorry, that's a horrible story. I mean, I have a son, and to save all of you, <laughs> you don't have a chance. <laughs> Why would God test? It, what a cruel test. Until you get to Matthew 26. And you realize that wasn't a test for Abraham. It was an illustration of what God was about to do. In Matthew 26, on the same hill, 2,000 years later, 
The son to be slain and the lamb in the thicket were one and the same. And God gave his own son for you. That is the hope of Israel. <laughs> well, Abraham, his family was pretty screwed up. I don't know if you've read his biography, but it's like a Phil Donahue show. I mean, it's bad. And you come, because of the family dysfunction, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And they need another savior. This time, the savior is none other than Moses. Now, you may have heard of Moses. Uh, it's, he's worthy of a Disney hit, Prince of Egypt. Maybe that's where you've heard about him. But he's also, uh, he's also famous for the Ten Commandments, right? By giving the Ten Commandments, if you give me a law code, he was not the first one in history to do it. He's actually the second. The earlier law code, by several hundred years, is the Code of Hammurabi. It's a stone about six feet tall, and below it are all of these laws. Now, it was the best legal system to date, but none of you would accept it today for one reason. There was not equal representation under the law. If you were rich, you got one punishment for murder. If you were poor, you got a totally different punishment for murder. And some of you go, well, we still have that today. Well, maybe so. But we object to it, and it's illegal. Do you realize that when Moses gave the Ten Commandments, that law code still today is the finest legal code of human history? And every nation on this planet that has a good human rights record has at its legal foundation the code of the Mosaic law. The problem is we're not really good at keeping it. Now, we need it. It's just like two-year-olds will push the boundaries because they, they need to know, am I safe? Am I safe? But law will not make you more righteous. It will make you feel more safe. And if we follow it, our culture is better. But the problem is, and Paul talks about this problem in Romans 7. He says, the law only made me want to sin more. He said, I would not have known what coveting is, but the law said, don't covet. And I said, well, what's coveting? And they said, well, it's when you want what someone else has. What do you mean? Like what? Well, look what he has. And you go, I want that. I feel the same way about speed limit signs. Right? As soon as you put a limit, I was like, rules are important for other people, but not for me. I mean, he's like, I, I, you put a law there, put a line there. I just want to cross it. That's what the law does. And it makes us want to sin. And so the, the question for Moses is, how should I live in a way that honors God in the middle of this world that's so broken? Now, Moses is credited with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm going to turn to his third book to answer the question, how should we live? This is the choral refrain through this book of Leviticus, the book that took most of you out of your Bible reading program. Did you catch the choral refrain of this book? I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. And if you're kind of new to church, you might not like that word holy. Holy, like holier than thou, right? A judgmental, right? No, the word holy actually means separate. It means set apart. And every one of you has something that's set apart in your bathroom right now. It is your toothbrush. 
Now your toothbrush is, uh, you don't clean grout with your toothbrush. You don't clean your shoes with your toothbrush. If you're married, my guess is that your spouse is not allowed to use your toothbrush, which biologically makes no sense if you kiss. I'm just saying, it's like, what's the big deal? But it's not like, it's my toothbrush. I don't want, it's, my, it's my toothbrush. It's exactly how God feels about you. One toothbrush is not better than another. One human is not better than another. But when God puts his hand on you and says, you're mine, he gets really covetous of you. He gets really jealous over you. And the way we live is not to earn our relationship with God, but to represent the relationship that he started with us. That's how we live. Of course, the problem is we, we don't always live like that. And the best illustration of that that I know is King David. Now, King David is a pretty cool cat. Even right now in Jerusalem, they're doing some archaeology to dig up the palace of David from 3,000 years ago. It's extraordinary to see. But, but the question of King David is, how can I pursue God? David was called, in both Old Testament and New, a man after God's own heart. How many of the Ten Commandments did David break? Do you know? I can count six. Like, I've only done like three. None of your business which ones. How can he be a man after God's own heart when he's broken so many commands? Because, please get this, and if you're new here, a friend brought you or you're watching online, this is such good news. Being a man after God's own heart, being a woman after God's own heart is not about the heart you have. It's about the heart you're after. Do you pursue him? And even if you stand at the edge of this great cavernous book, you will be awestruck by the grandeur of God's forgiveness of you and God's inordinate love and acceptance of you. And David wrote a, a, a ton of psalms that help us to really express that in our worship. In fact, about two-thirds of the psalm, which is the songbook of the Bible, are written by David, and it shows a heart of a man that even though he sinned, he was broken by his sin and put together by God. And, and the beauty of these poetic books uh, in the Bible, you've got, you've got Psalm, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. The beauty of these five books is the Psalms are for every age and stage of your life. The other poetic books are actually age appropriate. If you're a young person, like still living under mom and dad's roof, Proverbs is for you. Live it and you'll love it. The other book, as you kind of get into the young adult stage, is Song of Solomon. It's pretty spicy. And then, and then you go into the middle age where you, you have some scars. Book of Job is for you. And in your sunset years, Ecclesiastes is a book for you. At every stage of your life, there is a book that will help you learn how to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. And you don't have to understand every verse. You don't have to read every chapter. But if you just dive in, if you just see the panoramic view, you will be thunderstruck at the goodness of God. There is something in here for everyone and something at every stage of life. 
Well, the problem with the periods of the kings and David's, like the, the reign of the kings go from 1 Samuel clear up to 2 Chronicles. There's a bunch of books that, yeah, they're old and I don't really know where the places are on the map and I can't pronounce all their names. Who cares? If you get the big picture, you will begin to see the danger that we are in. And so God's solution was the prophets. And though the prophets come after the Psalms and and after the kingly books, they're chronologically interspersed with them. And the king of all the prophets, like the, the most famous of prophets of all was Elijah. He never wrote a book. Like the five big prophets, they call them the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're not major because they're more important, they're just longer books. And then you've got all these shorter books, there's 12 of those, and honestly, I don't like them. I don't enjoy reading them. It, it just takes too much brain work, and I'm looking up and all these words, and I, I get confused with it. So if you get confused, it's okay, we all do to some extent. I haven't, I haven't hiked the depth of that canyon just yet. But here's what I know. The prophets ask a question that every one of you is asking. Where can I find hope? Where can I find hope? And we look for hope in in so many wrong places, in, in, in in a lover, in a bottle, in a business, in a bank account. It's not where your hope is going to be found. Now, some of those can bring some hope. For example, there was one man about the time of of Elijah, just after him, who was predicted by name in the Old Testament. He's the only non-Jew predicted by name in the Old Testament. His name was Cyrus. And lo and behold, we have actually found a cylinder of Cyrus. This is a, a legal declaration that he wrote And so we know he was a real person. And what Cyrus did is after the Israelites were all taken into exile, he sent them back home. He restored their homeland. Well, good on Cyrus. But he didn't save their souls. He just saved their country. And here's what I want you to get more than anything else from this whole message. Every major pillar in the Old Testament is really about Jesus. Let me just read to you a passage from Romans chapter 5 about Adam. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. In other words, what Adam did wrong, Jesus made right. And he turned from Adam to Abraham. Ooh, it was a hot fight with Jesus one day. And the, the religious leaders, they said to him, are you greater than our father, Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Buddy, you've got no clue. And Jesus answers, your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And then you got Moses. Moses hadn't even died yet. Here's what Moses said about Moses. The Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. In other words, I cannot save you. I got you out of Egypt. I cannot save you. One is coming who can. And then there's King David. What David, God told David, you're the man, but really not. There's gonna be another. When your days are over, this is 2 Samuel 7, And you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And then there's Elijah. 
These are actually the last two, this blows my mind, the last two verses of the Old Testament. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. What I want you to see is that even though the Old Testament, it can be confusing. It's a big book, it's an old book. But it's a game of hide and go seek. And God has hid Jesus through all the pages and he wants to be found. And if you find him, knowing the Bible better will make you better. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And my prayer is that we would actually open up your word. Whether we're standing on the rim or hiking into the cavernous depths, that our purpose would not be to know more history, but to know you and let you change our history through your wisdom, through your word. Holy Spirit, we give you full permission, not that you need it, but we're not dissecting your word. We're giving you permission for your word to dissect our lives so that we could truly have life in the name and the person of Jesus Christ in whom we pray, amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.